All right, thanks, Ken. Uh, yeah, we looked at that in our first class. The word mystery, uh, it does not mean mysterious. It simply means a secret that is revealed. So that's what the New Testament does. And that's what Paul does in uh, Ephesians, which we, we've been concentrating on. He reveals what was hidden away in the Old Testament, what was hinted at, but the Jews missed in things like the promises to Abraham and the prophet Isaiah and all the way through the Old Testament, really. It was hinted at that the, the, the Gentiles should be fellow heirs with the Jews. And uh, that's our overall topic. We're, we're having a look at how God in his wisdom separated Jew and Gentile for 2,000 years and then brought them together to be one body in Christ in the first century. And uh, how that applies to us today. Uh, not so much Jew and Gentile, but different people with different ways of thinking, different, uh, um, different skills and so forth. But they need to come together and become one body in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've been looking uh, mainly in the epistle to the Ephesians. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time for this class. And this is uh, an epistle in which Paul expounds on the mystery of the gospel. And he explains how Gentiles once were far off from Christ, but have been brought nigh through the blood of Christ. And how Jew and Gentile now need to become one body in the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let's remind ourselves of something we had a look at either in our first or second class and that is the overall um or a break a very brief breakdown of ephesians and uh, extremely brief just in two uh, columns here ephesians is basically split into two halves and and the very structure of this book is part of the way in which Paul teaches about the mystery of the gospel and about the importance of, of ecclesial unity. Because in the first half of Ephesians, in the first three chapters, he talks a lot about doctrine. That's his main focus. This is the doctrine. But then in the last three chapters, he says that doctrine needs to be put into practice. And so we tend to emphasize either doctrine or practice we might say the Jews may be emphasized doctrine, the Gentiles may be emphasized practice in a general kind of way. And we tend to do that in the truth too. Some of us um, enjoy getting into uh, doctrine and Bible study and so forth. And there are others in our community who prefer the, the practical side of the truth. And of course, we've got to develop a, a mindset that is, is involved in both of these things. But what I want to emphasize in this particular class is that um, some of us do tend towards doctrine. Some of us do tend towards uh, practice. And for that reason, we need to work together because it's very hard to change. It's, it's very hard to um, get the balance perfectly right as individuals. But we can get the balance right if we work together as a family, as a community. We also made the point uh, a few weeks ago that what's interesting, little twist in the way Paul develops doctrine and practice is that in the first half of Ephesians, he emphasizes the doctrine of grace. And in the second half of Ephesians, 
he emphasizes the practice of truth. And that kind of turns things a little bit on its head in, in the way in which we normally associate people who tend to be more towards doctrine. They tend to emphasize truth. And people who emphasize practice uh, tend to also emphasize grace. But Paul turns around and says, no, let's concentrate on the doctrine of grace. Let's concentrate on practicing truth. And that way we can get the balance right and uh, function as that one body in Christ. Now, one more slide on the, the structure of Ephesians. This is what I think is the pretty much the middle verse of Ephesians. And you'll see how important it is. What Paul wants us to do ultimately in this book is to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That ultimately is what binds us together. The love of Christ who gave his life for us. Paul talks about this extensively in Ephesians, how the blood of Christ brings Jew and Gentile together. And of course, he gave his life because he loves us. That is ultimately what is going to bind us together. But the part of this verse I want to emphasize, you can see on the screen, is we need to know that love that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, what on earth does that mean? What does it mean to be filled with all the fullness of God? What is this fullness that Paul talks about? And he talks about it a couple of times in Ephesians. Well, first, on the left-hand side of Ephesians 3, verse 19, the emphasis is on grace, as we saw in the last slide. And then after Ephesians 3.19, then he gets more into the topic of truth. And I would suggest to you that those two words, grace and truth, summarize what this fullness of God is that we need to be filled with. Now, you might be thinking of a Bible echo here. Who was full of grace and truth? Anyone? Jesus, of course. Right. John chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus was full of grace and truth. And there's an interesting connection here between the way Paul structures Ephesians and the way John structures his gospel record. And very much so, John is a gospel in which he reveals the mystery of the gospel. He goes back time and time again in his gospel record to the Old Testament and shows how various things in the Old Testament, like the tabernacle, and most especially the tabernacle, hidden in that tabernacle was the Lord Jesus Christ. And he brings this out in the first chapter, in these very famous verses. He says in the very first verse, in the beginning was the word. And we can look at that as the pattern of the tabernacle, or as doctrine. So when we look at, when we go back into the Old Testament, we look at the chapters about the tabernacle in Exodus, there's two great big chunks. And, and first of all, we learn about the pattern of the tabernacle in Exodus chapters 25 to 31. That's the doctrine of the tabernacle. This is what the tabernacle is going to look like. And that's what doctrine is. Doctrine is teaching us what we should look like as brothers and sisters in Christ. But then, of course, we've got to put it into practice. So 
The second chunk about the tabernacle in Exodus is about how they built the tabernacle. That's Exodus chapter 35, right to the end. And so John says that the word, the doctrine, became flesh. The, the word was put into practice as the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the, the, the doctrine of the Old Testament. And Paul says he dwelt among us. That word dwelt, some very old translations have the word tabernacled, which is kind of a, a word that people coin to express what this word dwelt means. So that's what John's thinking about. He's thinking about the tabernacle. So Jesus tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, and here it is, full of grace and truth. Those two words which I said summarize Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. So when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, we see that balance between doctrine and practice, between grace and truth, perfected in an individual. However, what we're going to see, and this is what Paul outlines in Ephesians, is that Christ is the head directing us who are the body. And what we have to do, because we struggle to get the balance right, because we tend to be more Jewish or Gentile or left-wing or right-wing or conservative or liberal, because we tend towards those, we, we struggle with the balance. As a body, we need to be filled with the fullness of God which is being full of grace and truth as a body. And of course, the tabernacle, when it was finished, you can read about this in Exodus 40, verse 34 and 35. It says that when Moses finished the tabernacle, it was full of the glory of God. So that's what Paul is thinking about here. So that is ultimately what, what uh, Paul is uh, focusing on in Ephesians. The ultimate purpose of God, to be filled with the fullness of God, to be full of God's glory, that the whole earth might be full of his glory. And when we look at the tabernacle, we see a description of how that is, is to come about. All right, so let's have a look how Paul develops this in Ephesians. In the very first chapter, when he starts talking about doctrine, he reminds us that God has an eternal purpose. And if you look through uh, the first 11 verses here, you see this little phrase keeps cropping up. That uh, he predestined for adoption according to the purpose of his will. We have forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. And he talks about the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Verse 11 in Christ, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. I mean, Paul keeps saying it over and over again. So what Paul outlines here is that everything God does is according to his purpose. God doesn't make things up as he goes along. He is a God who has a plan, who has a blueprint, and then he follows that blueprint which is exactly what is in the description of the tabernacle. Moses and the other builders didn't just make it up as they went along. They were given the pattern of the tabernacle, and then they had to build according to it. And that's why both doctrine and practice are important, of course. We don't just make it up what it means to be a brother or sister in Christ. 
and have some sort of vague idea about being a good person and a loving one another. No, it, it's got to be based on the pattern. It's got to be based on the the doctrine, on the purpose of God. And then we we, we um, build up our lives and our families and our ecclesias according to that doctrine. And what Paul is doing here is he's using the, the figure of the tabernacle. That exact same phrase in the Greek is used a couple of other times in Acts 7 and Hebrews 8, where we're reminded that when Moses was given instructions about the tabernacle, God spoke to Moses and directed him to make it, there it is, according to the pattern. Hebrews 8, when Moses was about to wreck the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern. That's a quotation from Exodus chapter 25 and verse 9. So there's the principle, very applicable to ourselves. That's why doctrine is important. We, we can't build the right house without the right directions. So we need to understand doctrine. And we all understand that. And, and Paul, in the first few chapters, emphasizes that over and over again. Now, in the um, second half of Ephesians, then Paul talks about the building of the house. And he, again, thinks about the tabernacle. So if you go back to the chapters in Exodus about the tabernacle, there were men who were given gifts, a lot like the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, in particularly two men, uh, Bezalel and Aholiab, were given wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and expertise in all sorts of uh, uh, artistic um, ways to construct and uh, build the tabernacle. So Paul is thinking about this now in Ephesians 4, where he says he gave with the idea of, of these people being given the gift, he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And that's what Paul emphasizes in this second half. We need to take the doctrine and then build our ecclesias according to it. With the aim, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That's Paul's central exhortation. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So there he is repeating his, that main central verse. That's the point of what we do. That was the point of building the tabernacle. That was the point of God creating the heavens and earth that ultimately it might be full of his glory. Now, another thing you'll notice here is that there is um, interesting mixed metaphors that Paul uses. So right in the middle of talking about building up, the idea of erecting a house, he also uses the metaphor of a body. And if you go down to verse 15, you can see that here too. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up like a body grows in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So as we think about the house, we need to think of the, the dual metaphor of the body. And just as a house is built up until it's complete, 
So we need to grow as a body in Christ until we reach this word, uh, measure of the stature, has the idea of maturity. He also says he's here to mature manhood, we're, we're to uh, grow up as a body. So think of those two metaphors then as we uh, look through Ephesians. So Ephesians also says that Christ is the head of the body. So in chapter 1, verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the ecclesia, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's that word again. And I want to make the point again. Christ is full of grace and truth. The body also needs to be full of grace and truth. So exactly what he says here, the fullness of him who fills all in all. But to do that, to accomplish the task, the, the ultimate aim of the house or the body, again, we need to work together. This is Paul's point in Ephesians. You're not going to do it on your own. The Jews can't do it on their own. Gentiles can't do it on their own. We as individuals can't do it on our own. Our religion is not meant to be individualistic. It's meant to be communal. That's why God invented the idea of the ecclesia, that we meet together, that we become a united ecclesia in Christ because we need each other. And this is what Paul wants Jew and Gentile to learn. They need each other. And that was an unnatural thing, of course. They were naturally antagonistic to each other. And, and that's why Paul brings in the example of Christ and the blood of Christ and the love of Christ, because that's what's going to bring them together. Same principles apply to us today when we tend to be antagonistic towards those that we don't necessarily get on with because they have a different way of thinking, they're too liberal or too conservative or whatever it is, we need to learn to work together. All right, so that's um, the basic principles then. I'll ask a question, as I've asked a, a few times, why God did it this way. So here's a little graph or chart showing that in the beginning, in God's purpose, he decided to separate and put on two different routes, Jew and Gentile. The Jew focused on Yahweh's only true God. The Gentiles getting all mixed up in pagan polytheism, developing their separate ways of thinking, separate philosophies, ideals, worldviews, and everything. And then bang in the first century, one in Christ. Why did God do things like that? Why didn't he just have one line here? Here's God's purpose in the beginning, to fill the earth with his glory, and he just works with all people. He doesn't bother separating Jew and Gentile. He works with everyone and tries to instill in everyone grace and truth. Why go for this whole rigmarole of separating Jew and Gentile? And I think we've We've really answered this um, a few times in our classes. However, let's think about it um, from another angle. What God is not 
asking Jew and Gentile to do in Ephesians is somehow merge into the same person. We're meant to be different in the body of Christ, all different parts making up the one body. I think this is an important point when we come to verses like at the bottom of the screen here. This very famous verse in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And that's absolutely fundamental. We are one in Christ Jesus. But what does that oneness look like? Does that mean we're all um, the same? I think the word is homogenous. That we all have to have the same way of thinking, the, the, the same slant, that, that uh, those who are tend more towards doctrine have to come to more towards the middle. Those on the other side have to come and they have to become the same. They have to kind of merge together, as I, I tried to illustrate here. And I would submit to you that while in a sense, yes, because we all need to become like Christ, what God is looking for in this oneness is what we might call diversity in unity. Think about uh, what Paul says in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talks about those different parts of the body. And he, he talks about how the eye shouldn't say to the foot, you cannot see, therefore you should not be part of the body. No, the eye needs the foot, the foot needs the eye. And it's not as if the eye needs to be a foot as well, and the foot needs to be an eye as well. No, they all have their different skills, their different ways of looking at things, their different functions in the body. The point is they become one when they work together. And I think that's what Paul is trying to drive through to Jews and Gentiles in the first century. Yes, ultimately, we all want to become like Christ, but because we struggle with the balance, we need to work together and have uh, respect uh, for those who are towards the other end of the spectrum. And it's not that Jew is meant to become Greek. It's not that uh, slaves are meant to become masters or masters meant to become slaves or um, males become females, females become males, which of course is the vogue in this world uh, this 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 kind of a quality which merges the the genders together. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches diversity in unity, and it makes things far richer and far more interesting. If we're all the same, I mean, how boring would that be anyway? All right. With all of this in mind, we are going to have a look at uh, these metaphors of building the house and unity and the growth of the body and so forth through something very interesting that the Apostle Paul does at the end of Ephesians. And that is what he calls the mystery of marriage. Now, Ken asked me to define mystery at the beginning. Mystery is not something that is mysterious, although some of us here may be thinking, well, marriage is a little bit mysterious, um, and it is in some ways. But uh, the reason he uses the word mystery here 
is because of the, the same principle. And, and what Paul is going to do in Ephesians chapter 5, he's going to do a little exposition of the very first marriage in the Old Testament, right back in Genesis chapter 2. And in fact, in effect, what Paul is going to do is, is say that mystery of the growth of the body and the building of the house and unity in Christ, and even things like the love of Christ and the death of Christ, the blood of Christ, all of those things were hidden away in Genesis chapter 2. For however many thousand years, it's always been there. What, what I'm saying, Paul says, in Ephesians here is nothing new. I'm simply taking Genesis chapter 2 and expanding it out. So he says in Ephesians 5 verse 32, this mystery is profound, and it is. And we're going to just dip into the uh, dip a little bit below the surface into looking at marriage in a moment. And I'm saying that marriage refers to Christ and the ecclesia. So what Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 2, and what we do when, if we're married, is we're acting out this whole thing. The marriage of Christ and the Ecclesia. And we understand that the Ecclesia is also called not just the body of Christ. It's also called the bride of Christ. So all, all of these things sort of work together. And when we think of marriage like that, it really deepens the whole thing. Those of us who are married are acting out what it means to be one in Christ. And what the Apostle Paul does in his uh, is about 11 or 12 verses at the end of Ephesians chapter 5 is he takes all of the principles that he's talked about in the previous four and a half chapters. And he says, now, have a look at this through marriage. It's a remarkable thing that he does. So what I want us to do is work through this. And we might not get through it all today. So we'll carry on with this. Uh, God willing, next week in our last class. So let me give you uh, some examples of how Paul uses uh, marriage to illustrate the whole principle. Um, first of all, we're not going to go through this chiastic structure, but this is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to 33. There's last several verses of Ephesians where he talks about wives and husbands and brings out how Christ loved the Ecclesia and so forth. So there's all these parallels here in these verses, pointing us to what is right in the middle. What is the point of marriage? What is the point of Christ being the head of the Ecclesia? The point is that he might present the Ecclesia to himself in splendor which is kind of another way of saying what we read of earlier in ephesians chapter 3 the love of christ which he talks about extensively in the principle of marriage is there that we may be filled with all the fullness of god so the ecclesia needs to be a, a splendid other versions have a glorious ecclesia so that's that's what we're meant to be doing and for we husbands, 
that's our role as husbands is to make sure that our wives reflect the glory of God. And that really expands on what marriage is all about. It's a really, really deep thing. So here's an example. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is talking about the purpose of God. He says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless or holy and without blemish. And he's picking out, actually, he's picking up on the idea of the, the lamb that was used in offerings that should be holy and without blemish. Now, interestingly, that language there, which applies generally to all of us, of course, we all need to come to that point. But he specifically says this about marriage. Ephesians 5, verse 27, that he might present the ecclesia to himself in splendor, that verse we just looked at, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And even though it's translated differently here, it's the exact same phrase in the Greek. So in effect, what Paul is doing is saying, look at marriage as an outworking of these principles that I'm talking about. Uh, I've got a few other examples here. First of all, though, here's the issue that we all are confronted with in our marriages. We come from different planets. We're not dissimilar to Jews and Gentiles. Men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Not literally, of course, but this is a famous book that was put out, which talks about those those differences and the, the conflicts that we can get to, into in marriage because men and women are very different. We think differently. We have different approaches to things. And it can cause lots of issues in marriages, as I'm sure all of us who are married are very, very uh, well aware of this. And uh, marriage is something that takes work and uh, that, that we might, as the Jews and Gentiles had to work together, we might work together to produce uh, that oneness that God is looking for in marriage. So what I've done is I've got a couple of quotes here. So you don't think I'm just making this up off the top of my head. And uh, this is actually a good example of marriage in process because I told Esther I was going to talk about the differences between men and women. And she said, make sure you quote some sources. So they don't think this is just Richard talking. So there's, Esther helping her husband to produce this, this class. So just a little mini example of, of husband and wife working together. And uh, this is from Psychology Today. And there are num you can look at a number of articles there in which they talk about the differences between male and female. So men tend to be very linear. They go from point A to point B. They were very direct. Women, on the other hand, tend to think more globally and consider the big picture. This, of course, creates all sorts of conflicts from communication to the perception of emotional availability, to sexuality, to problem solving, to asking for directions, whole slew of things. And this is probably one of the main things that is, the ch is a challenge in marriage. Uh, women do think more globally. They do think of the big picture, while a man will tend to focus on the the thing at hand itself and not see the, uh, the context around it and try to fix the, the problem in, it, in and of itself 
Whereas a woman will tend to approach this, and again, this is a tendency, these are generalities, of course, and a woman will tend to approach that looking at the context, looking at the broad picture, and looking at things. If we do it this way, it's going to affect that. If we do it this way, it's going to affect that. Where a man just thinks, well, here's a good solution, and gets his hammer and nail, and bang, 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 and problem sorted, and then more problems come because he hasn't asked the advice of the big picture thinker. So we've probably all come into situations like that in our lives. Um, over on the right-hand side, um, I've tried to summarize the article and uh, basically men are as a general physical creatures. That summarizes men. Women on the other hand are more complicated and more contemplative creatures. They are, I love the way that this article puts it, they are the thread that holds the fabric of society together. And what we're going to see, actually, is that is quite biblical. And I don't think whoever wrote this article was, was looking at um, Genesis 2 or any of the other passages in, in relation to marriage. But that is a, as uh, we're going to touch on, hopefully later or next week, the way uh, women hold the fabric of society together and tend to think about the whole cloth, not just the part that they can see or touch, that's very, very biblical indeed. And I, I really like that. So there's just a, a little example of how men and women are different. If anyone objects, you can not just take it up with me, you can take it up with psychology today. Uh, so let's look at the parallel between marriage and the mystery of the gospel. Here's this graph again that we saw earlier. God separated Jew and Gentile, brings them together, one in Christ. What do we see in marriage? We see the exact same thing. Okay? It's not that men live in a men's commune and women live in a women's commune and they never really talk to each other, which in many ways would make life easier. I mean, in the men's commune, we just have sports and barbecues and uh, board games or whatever it is that we do. We'd ride motorbikes to our heart's content and we'd be as happy as, as can be. And uh, women wouldn't have men to contend with and they would be happy. And wouldn't that make life just so much easier? Well, no, God brought man and woman who he purposefully made in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. He made them male and female. So this is in God's purpose from the beginning. He could have just made one single gender, but no, he made them very different, male and female. And now he says in Genesis chapter 2, you need to be one, which in many ways is a ridiculous thing. Uh, because of the differences between men and women. So it's a, it's a beautiful illustration of the, the mystery of the gospel. Now, this is from another, these uh, lists here. This is from another Psychology Today article. There's the address down there. The truth about sex differences. And what this article does is it um, summarizes many of the main differences between male and female genders, and it puts them as either 
small small differences, medium differences, or big differences. And uh, the lists are far longer than this, but I just try to summarize them. And I try to get a mix of positive and negative. I didn't have a very good, uh, do a very good job of that with men. There weren't very posit many positive things about men. I don't know why. I, I don't get it. So um, impulsivity, physical aggression. We'll talk about this one in a moment. The only real two um, positive differences are that we tend to be better at task-oriented leadership. Um, and again, that's, that's focused, going back to a previous slide, that's focused on a particular task and we were good at solving tasks and providing the leadership in that task-oriented way. We're also good at mental rotation ability. Yay, man. So we're much better at women at mental rotation ability. I have no idea what that is, but it sounds fantastic. We're, we're obviously awesome. Um, on the other hand, there were a lot of positive things about women, interpersonal trust, tender-mindedness, interest in people over things. Um, and uh, towards the top of the list are those that tend to be a little less that we're different in. And at the bottom of the list, these tend to be the ones we're more different about. And uh, the one I really want to bring out is this idea of empathy. And we men, although we can have empathy, we struggle with it. So with women, it's, it's, it's pretty natural. Women are empathetic creatures. Whereas one of the main differences between male and female, according to this article, is that we men have a vulnerability to psychopathy. In other words, we are more likely to become psychopaths. Yay men, again. Uh, which really is the opposite of empathy. We really, really struggle with empathy. And uh, that's one of the reasons why we men really need women. What would it be like if we did just have a commune of men lacking in empathy? It would be, um, what's that book, Lord of the Flies. We need women. We need that uh, empathy that we might come together. We might balance each other out. And whereas uh, women might need things like task-oriented leadership, and definitely they need mental rotation ability, which we're really good at. And uh, women need that. And we need these... Um, more womenly characteristics, and then we work together as one in Christ. I mean, what would raising children be like if we were just like this or just like this? So, you know, being a parent requires uh, input from both mum and dad. So it's really, really interesting, I find, to look at uh, uh, these things and to um, see how they relate. But if anyone wants to comment, I know I'm going super fast. Just uh, jump in. So there's another um, 
another presentation I came across, thinking about this idea of empathy and emotions. So emotions, women typically have a larger limbic system as part of the brain, which makes them more in touch and expressive with their emotions. And I know as a man, I struggle to express my emotions. Um, my stock answer is, are you okay? Yep, fine, everything's fine. Uh, women are usually more empathetic and comprehensive in thinking while men focused on exact issues and disregard impertinent information. So that's saying what we've looked at before in another way. Uh, we tend to be task-oriented. We look at the, the problem itself, focus on that, and we have good problem-solving skills, but we do tend to disregard impertinent information. We tend to miss the big picture. We tend to miss what the ramifications will be. We tend to miss how it might affect other people. Whereas women tend to look at those things, often as more important than solving the problem itself. And uh, in our lives in the truth, in which we're always solving problems and in marriages and, and parenting and so forth, uh, we need to work together. We need the problem-solving skills of the male, and we need the empathy of the female. Otherwise, it's simply not going to work. Any thoughts on that? I thought this would bring in a lot of discussion. Is anyone still there? Oh, yeah. What's that little clip at the bottom? Pardon? The video. What's the little video clip at the bottom of the Oh, I don't know. This is, I just, I just uh, took a Copy screen. Copy and pasted it. A screen grab. I think that's from a uh, friend, the Friends TV show. Yeah. I like this, uh, these, this, the Man's Day. Right. Sure. Okay. Hey, um, Rich, just so you know what mental rotational ability is. Is that spatial thinking? It's spatial rotations. They right. ran into this in education when they discovered that men were so much better in chemistry when we got into looking at the rotational ability of three-dimensional models of a molecule. So men are men have a much more of an ability to do that. So do right. teenage boys. When uh, girls seem to have trouble with like taking figures and rotating them in their head and finding out what matches up, what's the exact same shape as this when you rotate right. it. Yeah, so that, that really helps in problem solving, right? It helps in problem solving, <laughs> but it's not entirely practical. So it, you know, it, it's 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 great on a maybe a, doc, a doctrinal level, but on a a practical level, it's it has limited uses. But we're good at it, which is awesome. All right. So let's have a look at another uh, few ways in which Paul brings out um, the principles in Ephesians and applies them to marriage. So we've looked at this passage before in Ephesians 2, that Jesus is our peace, that the, the middle, the dividing wall has been broken down and so forth. We looked at this last week, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So Jew and Gentile come together as one 
in Christ. Now, the echo with marriage there is pretty obvious. Here, Paul, at the end of Ephesians says, and he quotes from that verse in Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You know, looking at this, you'd almost think that Paul was quoting from the very same passage. So marriage very much is to do with this, this principle of unity. Um, love, obvious in marriage, comes out very strongly. So earlier in Ephesians, uh, uh, Paul talks in a general way that we should walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Now, that same language he applies to marriage. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the ecclesia and gave himself up for her. You see, gave himself up, gave himself up. So that's how we husbands should look at our wives. We need to be Christ to them. So having a wife is not like, you know, having a trophy wife. Um, even though I have one, but at the same time, it's not just about that. It's not about just thinking your wife is, is, is good looking and so forth. No, love is the love of Christ that we should have. And that obviously expands the whole um, principle of marriage hugely. Um, the idea of a pattern that we've looked at earlier, that the building is made according to the pattern or everything God does is according to his purpose. When we look at marriage and we look at Christ and the Ecclesia, one is the pattern of the other. As the Ecclesia submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, this is a, this is a key verse because this idea of submission is um, not a politically correct word in modern society the idea of a wife submitting to a husband but the important thing here is what it says uh, as the ecclesia submits to christ why submit to their husbands so paul is not asking a wife to submit to an egyptian taskmaster if that's the sort of husband we are, we're not meant to submit. That wives are not meant to submit to that. We're not meant to treat our wives as, as doormats or as slaves in the house. There has to be this reciprocal relationship where we're Christ to our, our wife. And it's that that she submits to as the ecclesia submits to Christ. Otherwise, there's no reason at all for a wife to submit to an abusive husband. Uh, speaking of submission, uh, he talks more generally in Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that picks up on um, Ephesians 1, where it says that, he, this is a verse we looked at earlier, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the ecclesia, which is his body. So there is the way in which the body is put under. That word put is exactly the same word, submitting. So he submits all things under his feet, including the ecclesia. So the head directs the body. And that's the kind of uh, relationship and how that, how that applies to marriage is um, something that we need to be really, really careful of how we understand this. You know, the head controlling the body. That doesn't mean 
that husbands should be control freaks of their wives. Not what it's saying at all. That's not what Christ is to us. Christ has not lorded over us. He's not a taskmaster. He's somebody completely different. Uh, the idea of the body, obviously. So um, in Ephesians 5, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. So we're, we're to be one flesh, one body, in a, obviously in a spiritual way. He talks about that uh, to do with the ecclesia in Ephesians 4. Speaking the truth in love, that's what binds us together. We are to grow up as a body in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Um, so that is how Paul then brings out all of these principles and applies them to Christ and the Ecclesia. And as I said, this is a little mini exposition of Genesis chapter 2.